10 days time, 22nd of February, I will have been a Christian for 40 years. That would be my born again birthday. And I was just thinking during the week how good it has been to do life's journey with all of you. And I thought, if I hadn't become a Christian, I probably wouldn't have met any of you. And I just think, you know, this fellowship has enriched my life and I'm very thankful for you all. But we're going to continue this morning with our series on a holy nation. And the subject this morning is a clean heart. And we're going to read Psalm 51. Now, this was written by King David as a prayer of repentance after his affair with Bathsheba. So it's a a prayer of repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So I thought we'd just take a little look at the backstory to this psalm. And that story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David, King David, had sent his whole army out to war. It was led by Joab and they were fighting the Ammonites. But David stayed at home. Now, for a man who'd spent a great deal of his life fighting, leading the armies, remaining at home would not sit easily. And as we know, this was not going to end well. We're not told why he stayed at home, but no doubt he got bored and restless. And you know what they say about the devil and idle hands. One night he goes for a walk on his rooftop and he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. Instead of turning around there and then as he should have done, He lingered, and that's when the trouble started. He didn't set out to do the dreadful things that followed, but we know that sin creeps, it doesn't leap. I've heard it said that if you drop a frog into boiling water, it will jump out straight away. But if you put it into lukewarm water and heat it up gradually, it's not even aware that it's dying or that anything's happening. So we know sin just creeps up on us, but don't just set out to do all the bad things straight away. 
David asked who this girl was and was told she was the wife of Uriah, one of his faithful warriors who was away on the battlefield. David slept with her and a short while later gets a note saying that she's pregnant. Under the guise of wanting to reward Uriah for his loyal service, David brought him home from the war and told him to go home to his wife. Now, Uriah, being an honourable man, refused to go home while his men were sleeping in tents on the battlefield. So in spite of David's best efforts, Uriah resisted. So David could see no way out of this predicament but to send Uriah back to the battlefield with a note to Joab. He said, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw so he'll be killed. And that's what happened. David was relieved. He thought, oh, well, that's that problem sorted then. Bathsheba, we read, mourned the loss of her husband. We're not told how Bathsheba really felt about all of this. And there was no Me Too campaign in her day. David was the king. He was powerful. Nobody could say no. And sexual desire is a very strong emotion. And just think how many celebrities and, and men of power and influence have abused their position and have ended up in prison. But after an appropriate time, Bathsheba moved into the palace and married David, and his son was born. David must have really thought that he'd got away with it. Adultery and murder, not something that you would want the public to know about. There was a case on the news quite recently of a man who'd committed a murder 47 years ago, and only because of recent advances in forensic science, he was convicted. Now, he must have really thought he'd got away with it after 47 years. But of course, with David and with all people, God knew, as God knows each one of us and everything about us. So God sent Nathan the prophet to tell David a story. The story went, there were two men, one rich and one poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds. The poor man had one little ewe lamb, which he loved like one of his own children. A friend of the rich man came to visit, and not wanting to kill one of his own lambs, the rich man took the poor man's precious lamb instead. When David heard this story, he was incensed. That man deserves to die, he shouted. To which Nathan quietly replied, you are that man. Now, can you imagine how David felt then? His sin revealed. God was angry with him. God had given him so much and he'd done evil in the sight of the Lord. He deserved death. Now, I wonder how many of us would feel if Nathan the prophet were to walk in here today and our secrets exposed. You are that man. You are that woman. I wonder how many of us would be feeling distinctly uncomfortable by now but we read on that David admits, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin and you shall not die. David's failure is our warning. David's story is not in the Bible to show us how we should live, but to show us how often we do live. We are all sinful people. Now it might not be adultery and murder, but what about pride and greed? and selfishness, and envy, and ill temper. You know, we're guilty of all of those things. So we see what was behind the writing of Psalm 51. David was broken. 
He humbled himself before God. He confessed his sins and accepted the consequences. I'm just finished reading a book by Craig Groeschel called The Christian Atheist. And this is just pointing out how people believe in God as we do, but then live as if he didn't exist. Now, Craig Groeschel was given a vision from the Lord, which he writes about in this book. And it was a vision of three lines drawn in the sand. And he somehow instinctively knew what it meant. Line one, I believe in God and the gospel of Christ enough to benefit from it. Well, we could all say that really, couldn't we? We're like the thought of eternal life. We're like answered prayers. You know, we can benefit from the fellowship of being together and, you know, having friendships within the church. We benefit from that. Line two, I believe in God and Christ's gospel enough to contribute comfortably. We're happy to serve. We're happy to serve God. We're happy to serve in the church. But we don't want it to cost too much. We don't want to do things that make us feel uncomfortable. I think that most of us could probably say that we were across line two. You know, we're happy to serve, but we, we, you know, we're, we're cautious about the cost of that. Line three, I believe in God and Christ's gospel enough to give my whole life to it. Whole life. My dying to self life. My daily life. Keeping Christ at the forefront of every moment of every day. Now, Craig Rochelle explains in the book that it took him nearly two years to cross that third line, to lay down every fear that he'd had and to be completely surrendered. And from then on, it's a daily commitment. Now, it's going to be different for each one of us. We're not all the same. It might be that God is saying to you, right, okay, get out of that nice warm bed and get up and start praying. It might be, switch off the social media. Put the phone down. Put the iPad down. You know, there are different things for different people, but if we, we have to really want it, that's the same for all of us. How we cross that third line, how we surrender our lives totally to Jesus, it's going to be different for everybody. But the thing that is the same, we have to want it. We have to want that close walk with Jesus. Now, David knew his sin. He acknowledged his sin. And I know that there are some people who will not accept sin. A previous president of the United States, when asked to define sin, said that it was whatever was out of line with his own values. He could set the standard. And it's a personal failing, a reason to be disappointed with oneself, but not a major problem. Another more recent president of the United States said he didn't need to repent because he'd never done anything wrong. You can probably guess who that one was. And it's so easy to drift away. Robert Robinson wrote the beautiful hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Years later, while traveling by stagecoach, a woman was singing his hymn, and he was driven to confess that he no longer had the same feelings he had had when he composed that hymn, and he longed for them to return. And I think there'd be many of us sitting here today that saying, I'm not where I used to be, and I'd like to get back there. In the words of his own hymn, he was still prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But for David and for all of us, there is a way back to God. So let's take a closer look at Psalm 51 and how David repented and confessed his sin. Verse 1. Firstly, the psalm 
begins with speaking of God's mercy, his unfailing love and his great compassion. He said, have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. David bases his prayer on the unfailing love of God, the only hope he has that God will forgive. And note how many different words he uses for sin, transgressions, iniquity. And then in verses three and four, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Here David admits responsibility for his own sin. He wasn't trying to excuse himself. It's too easy for us to say, well, you know, it's just my nature. It's the way I am. My dad had a bad temper, so that's, you know, I've just inherited it. Heather, if you knew the people I have to work with and live with, well, you would know how I react the way I do. C.S. Lewis outlines the strategies we adopt to convince ourselves that sin is not the great problem that the Bible says it is. We might compare ourselves with others and think, well, I'm not as bad as them. Or we'll blame it on society or the times we live in. Or think, well, it's a long time ago and surely time cancels out sin. I mean, you know, it doesn't really matter now, does it? Or even, well, everybody's doing it. And everybody thinks like that, so it must be acceptable. I remember once reading about a group of American soldiers who had committed a terrible atrocity in a village in Vietnam. And because there was, they were all a party to it, there was a way of excusing what they'd done by group numbing, not my personal responsibility. But as David said in verse 4, against you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. Obviously, David had sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, and even the army commander Joab in ordering him to be responsible for Uriah's death. And he was already sinning against his own people because he wasn't leading them well as king. But ultimately, all sin is against God. And God is angry about sin. The cross of Christ makes no sense if God is not angry at sin. We're more used to the idea of a loving God than an angry one. But the God who is angry at sin is also the same God who is our loving Heavenly Father. In order to understand the reason for the cross and the cruel death of our Saviour, we need to start by accepting and understanding God's anger at sin. God is angry and he hates the sin in the world. And yet, in his grace, he provides a way for us. The old hymn goes... There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a way that is open and all may go in. Now, some of the ladies in the church and I have recently started a small book group. It's just four short chapters. The book is called The Cross in Four Words. And in that book, it says, access to God is something we could only have because of Jesus. That means nothing else. Not knowledge, not moral good living, not religious rituals, not church attendance guarantees you access to God. Nothing except faith in Jesus Christ. If there was any other way for us to live in peace with God, then Jesus would never have gone to the cross. When he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, let this cup pass from me, it could have been. But it was not taken away because there was no other way to avert God's anger against sin and win forgiveness and acceptance for sinners. In the little book that we're looking at in our book group, there's an illustration that I found particularly moving. 
and I'd just like to quote from that. It says, remember, God in his anger is like a consuming fire. Now, you can remember in, on television last summer, seeing all of the wildfires all over the world and how devastating these wildfires are. They consume everything, destroy everything in their path. And it's a scary and serious thing to be caught up in a forest fire. Yet, there is a place, even in a forest fire, where it's possible to be safe. Once the fire has gone through a certain part of the forest, it has burned absolutely everything that can be burned and will never come back there again. So the safe place in a forest fire is where the fire has already burned. The Bible tells us that one day things will come to an end and Jesus will return in judgment. It's going to be like a fire and it's going to be far greater than any forest fire. It will sweep through everything. There will be no escape, no corner of the earth that is somehow left untouched. If you are guilty of sin, and all of us are, then the fire of God's judgment is an incredibly scary place to be. But there is a safe place, one safe place. That is to be found in Jesus Christ, who has already undergone the fire of God's anger. If we confessed our sins to Jesus and trust in him, then all of the anger that we deserve has already been poured out on him. Jesus has undergone the fire of God's anger. And so he is a safe place for us. He is the one place to run to and remain in. Do you know, I think that's a marvellous illustration. And it just really spoke to me. I thought, Jesus has taken all of God's anger on himself so that we are safe and we don't have to do that. So the amazingly good news is there's no more anger left for those of us who are trusting Jesus because he has drunk to the very bottom the cup of God's wrath for us. In Psalm 51, having confessed and repented of sin, David then asks God to cleanse him and make him a new person, to recreate him with a clean heart. Cleanse me with hyssop, he says. Hyssop was specifically linked to the process by which lepers once healed could be restored to their place in the community. In the same way that leopards, lepers were outwardly unclean, so David saw his inner being as unclean. And in verse 8, we see how unconfessed sin can have an effect on our own physical health when he says, the bones you have crushed. If you don't confess sin, it could have all kinds of physical ramifications. I remember about six months or so after I became a Christian, I got baptised by full immersion in water and in those days back in the day you got to wear a white gown and because for me because of the life I had lived before this was really symbolic and I, I just it was like a change an inward change the being recreated having a fresh start being a new person and I loved it I can highly remember it I know once we're back in the chapel there will be a baptismal service and if anybody hasn't been baptised and you're thinking about it, I would highly recommend it. It was the most wonderful experience. David is not looking for a change in his circumstances, but in his inner being, in his thoughts and attitudes. Often people think that a change in their circumstances, like a new home or a new job or a new church, would make life better, only to find that they are the problem and nothing has changed. Being a new person, renewed inwardly, doesn't necessarily mean that life is easier, but our approach will be different. 
a new heart and a new spirit. And as Tim rightly said to us when he introduced this teaching series, being holy is not something that we can do by our own effort. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Only by repentance and faith and allowing God to work in us by his spirit, then we can know that we are in a right relationship with God. The final verses of this psalm, 13 to 19, show David's wanting to get back to worship and to praise, knowing that he's not there by right, by his own achievements, but as one who is unworthy, vulnerable, and humbled. In verse 17, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. It is not within his nature for God to reject the genuinely repentant. When we're aware of the darkness of our own hearts and how much our sin offends a holy God, we will be thrilled and amazed again at the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. Just to close, and I'll ask the band if they can come back up. Thank you. I'd like to quote again from this really lovely little book. Um, as I say, the, the cross in four words. And it's just speaking about the cross and says, why would Jesus do such a crazy thing? Because despite everything, Jesus loves us passionately. And you know, for God to allow such a sacrifice is grace. For God to provide such a sacrifice is amazing grace. For God to become such a sacrifice is grace beyond our wildest dreams. Amen. <laughs>